this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gelfellen, host of I Change Justice podcast, and we have a special conversation today to celebrate two years of the I Change Justice podcast being online, distributed, and circulated across the nation, and for that matter, around the world, because people can get onto the I Change Justice podcast from anywhere. And the ho- as host of the I Change Justice podcast, i am also been the president of the Restorative Community Coalition and am currently the executive director who hosts this conference call and these podcasts. But the special guest we have tonight is Irene Morgan, the founder of the Restorative Community Coalition, who started it as the Whatcom County Reentry Coalition way back in 2006. Welcome to the call, Irene Morgan. Thank you, Joy. Thanks for having me again. I'm really excited um, to be talking about this because um, there's just so much that's happened, not just recently, but over the last several years. And um, I'm eager to to talk again. Good. I'd like to have you do a couple of reflections about what it's like talking about the mass incarceration industry, what it's like talking about re-entry as opposed to restorative justice, re-entry, you know, regenerative uh, economics, all these things. When you started 2006, back then, what was going on in your mind and what does it feel like to be 17 years later? Well, quite successful, excuse me, actually. uh, My my uh, original goal still exists. Uh, it has not come to fruition like I had expected to it to, which is the Restore Life Center, which is the solution for all of the all of the issues that we experience with people coming back into community from incarceration, whether it's jail or or prison, or if someone's just homeless and needs a hand up. Um, so. So what do you mean that it hasn't come to fruition? Because we've done a whole lot of things. What's the difference between not having achieved your goal as opposed to 17 years of high-end success? Because you wouldn't still be doing it if you weren't feeling deeply successful. What's the difference between doing a lot of work that's been very productive and not having reached this goal of a Restore Life Center? What's the difference between those two conversations? Well, the, it's really quite simple. I guess maybe we were either preschool or kindergarten when we started because I <laughs> I just knew that uh, all you had to do was, was help these fecal people become successful citizens and help them get on their feet so they could get back on their horse and ride to whatever destination they were going and, and be successful in their life. And I still believe that. But what's happened is we've been educated um, with hard knocks for these 17 years about um, how the system works. And when I first started, even now, even as, as recently as a year ago, people within the system, working in the system, the, the people that work in, in the jails, in, in the courts, and uh, probation, and judges, and all of them, they all have said to me, Irene, this is, yes, we know the system is broken, but we just, we know it. We all know it, but we don't know how to fix it. And my retort was, well, we do. And it's really quite simple. Just make available the programs that these folks need so that they can go through these programs and become uh, self-sufficient so they can get on with their lives. But that's not how the system is set up and 
it took me a long time to realize it. And then probably at least as long a time besides that to actually admit to myself that the system is not broken. The system is designed to keep people in a failure mode, in an unsuccessful mode. And the reason I say that is we went, you and I went to Olympia in 2011 because we we had learned that people coming out of incarceration from Washington State prisons were released with a prisoner ID. It was the same ID that they wore inside the prison to identify themselves. And that's what they were released with. And by the way, it's not one of the four pieces of ID that the banks will take to prove who you are. So they they were released with a $40 check. This was in 2011. $40 check with a prison ID that they could not cash their checks with. So if if the state really wanted them to be successful, why would that still be happening today? In some cases, I know of some people that have been released with a check and their prison ID. They are far less. They, they do. Some people are released. I hope the majority. I don't know for sure because I can't get a straight answer. Um, but um, and I someone just told us recently that they they released with cash and not a check, which is a huge, huge improvement. But it's just things, and this happens over and over. And um, it's it's so clear to me that. It's not that hard to implement good programs that serve people to help them become successful. And other states and communities do it. So why, why so, is not Washington doing it? So one of the things that I guess I'd like the audience to understand, because when I started working with you in 2010, I was under the delusion that people who went to jail and went to prison were people who were actually guilty of crimes. And what you were doing as the founder of the Whatcom County Reentry Coalition was helping people who had paid their their fines, had done time in, in prison, were coming back to society. And what they needed was help because they were drug addicted before they went in, they were mentally ill, there was damage, whatever, they had committed crimes and they were coming back and you were working individually with people to help them get reoriented and re, you know back into society so they could go back to work and get jobs and and the project was over, right? And what I discovered after working with you for a little bit is that that actually wasn't, there were multiple things that were not quite true with my assumptions as a, a new person from the community stepping into a new organization that was based on human compassion and your understanding of how people who messed up needed to have help readjusting their own thinking so they could come back and be part of society. And what you actually discovered and what I discovered working with you is that there was a whole different conversation between systems that did not work in the law and justice system, language that was different between what the law and justice system and the jail industry and the courtrooms were using to describe what is crime, and the actual definition of whether or not people were convicted of doing a crime or if there was injustice in the system where people didn't even understand how the system worked and why they got in there in the first place. So there's like all these changes in words and language and whether we're talking about the system, the people that go in and the people who operate the system. So that was interesting, Irene, because over the last few years, we've really had to learn the difference in those things. But all along, you've known and you were advocating for building a Restoral Life Center, which is like a housing first, explain your model as to how we could help people save the taxpayers money and produce a healthier community. Talk about your Restoral Life Center. Well, the Restoral Life Center is something I discovered when I was, before I ever started the coalition. It's Delancey Street in, in San Francisco. Um, Mimi Silbert started it over 50 years ago. 
and she had an 80% success rate. People coming from prison, coming to her establishment, having housing, having work, having education. They even had, they had like uh, 12 or 15 different businesses where the people would work so they could have work experience and have learn how to budget their money, how to rent a home, uh, a, an apartment, and, and be the successful human being that society expects them to be. That's what Delancey Street is, and that's what Restore Life Center that I vision is, except I expanded it to a, include a farm because I'm a farm kid. I was raised on a farm, and I know that most people don't know where their food come from. Food comes from, and they don't know that uh, everyone doesn't know that chocolate milk doesn't come from a brown cow. <laughs> so you know, that's true. Yeah. And um, so, and when you get your hands dirty and you pull a carrot out of the ground and wipe it off and take a bite, that's real food. That's not been sitting in a store for who knows how many weeks waiting to be purchased. Um, so, uh, and, and the, and the animals are healers and they, they know when someone needs to have a little nudge and, and get a slurp on the cheek from a dog or a, a little butt from a goat. Um, so, um, so and, when you're and, talking about a sustainable farm and you're talking about a restoral life center, you're also talking about bringing the experience of being alive, living on a farm, having your feet in the dirt, being able to work with living animals that can be done even in a city if you wanted to have a a, a, a sure. space that has like the animals as natural therapy project, for sure. example. Yep. All of those things have to do with humans interacting with nature, interacting with things that are real and with food and herbs and nourishment to support the body in reconnecting to the earth. Because when you're coming out of prison, but we're sentient beings. Out of concrete buildings. Yeah, we're sentient beings. We need to be fed. We need to be fed by more than food. And and when you interact with the planet, the earth, the dirt, and grow your food and milk a cow or hold a baby lamb or see kittens born or whatever, it's it just it's part of the life experience. And and you can then transfer it to your own life, maybe not knowing how a baby is born, but seeing kittens born or seeing a, a calf born and how the, the mom, a cow takes care of it. And uh, that also, that also goes back to allowing you to grow food and have your hand in the dirt. You actually get to plant seeds and allow plants to grow for a while yeah. before their fruit, they fruit or before they produce something that is edible. There's time and I mean, it changes your whole perception about what Mother Nature is, what food is, what humans are, how things grow and how things love. Would you say that that's... I believe that it helps people become respectful, not only of of, of other people, but of the planet and, um, and respect of all things. The other thing that I know when you were talking about the Restore Life Center, we are living in a smaller community. It's a, uh, our county is only 200,000, 250,000 people now. But our cities were under 100,000, right? And, and we have other small towns across the nation. And at the time when I started working with you, I was under the impression that everything was about prisons because reentry has to do with prisons. But a prison is a 365, you know, you're you're incarcerated for over a year for a criminal felony conviction. And what I discovered in working with you is there's this whole other conversation that is often ignored in the mass incarceration or crime and punishment story about jails. Yep. So talk to us about what's different about working in a smaller community and working with people who have been arrested go into the court systems, come out. What's the difference? Well, unlike a large city, many of us know our neighbors and and know um, maybe even the family, but it, it's the same all over. The, the, the system is set up for the, for the system. 
and it's it's not from my perspective a fair system and um jail is is just the the feeder for the the prisons it's a prison pipeline and our youth are caught in it with our juvie system and washington is very quick to um punish our juveniles as adults in many many cases and um it's just it's so prevalent that if someone gets caught up in the system then they i i swear they have a target on their back and they they are um if anything goes wrong they are the ones that are blamed often and i've seen it happen so i know it does happen and um and the other thing is most people do, we have been conditioned by a society that has us to believe that everyone in jail and prison are bad people and i know there are some really bad people out there and i absolutely think that they should be incarcerated and us kept safe safe from them and them um sequestered hopefully humanely so that they can heal or whatever needs to happen for them to to be able to hopefully be a, a functional member of society somewhere down the road but what i've seen is the system is set up to incarcerate and when people go into to prison or to 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 the courts most of them are ignorant they have no idea what's really going on and they they are not allowed to speak i have heard a judge say to many people now after the many years that i've been going is you have the remi- you have the right to remain silent your your attorney will speak for you and they will not allow them to speak they keep interrupting them if, if they try and um so i've i've done a little research on that and understand that a little more and it's way f- too deep a subject to go into but um it's very it's very apparent to anyone who studies it and who knows there's something wrong and i've always known there was something wrong i just didn't know what until recently and now that i know the what um our system does not run and is not conducted the way most of our american citizens believe it does and so, so to put that into perspective there were a few years after i first met you you started really seriously going to court to observe people who were being arraigned they'd been arrested they were taken to court you were listening to them you were you were hearing the arraignments you started looking at statistics and you started tracking how many people came in to i remember the first time you took me to a, an arraignment court and they were like oh 30 or 40 people that were going through the first hour or two of an arraignment that's that's the first time that they've been arrested and go before the court and their charges are read. And you were, I remember sitting there watching you and you were taking notes on how many people in suits, like there were a few dozen attorneys in the room, all in suits and waiting for these dozens of more cases to be brought forward. And in many cases, the people who were being arraigned were only the first time, that was the first time they'd actually talked to somebody who was going to be their public defender. And they hadn't even met them. And they may have been arrested like on a Friday and the arraignment was on Monday. And they hadn't even talked to a public defender from the time they were arrested and coming for. And I just remember watching you take all these notes. And I went, what are you doing? And you started to comment on the... I could almost predict what was going to happen. Yes, you could. And <laughs> and you pointed out that no one was there to defend the people. And in those days, a lot of the people were actually brought into the courtroom. And in the past few years, what we've discovered is that they don't even get to come to court anymore. They have to sit on a video camera inside the jail. They don't even get to come out of the jail. So when they come out of the jail to court, 
they at least get to see somebody that they notice and that they know and that cares about them when they're sitting in these arraignments. On it's, a, very, it's very rare that people ever get into court physically. Yeah. Rare. So one of the things that you started to do was work on a court navigator system and you started to serve and talk to family members of, of people who were going in. And I remember just watching you learn to talk with people to help them understand the language even that they were being like people when they get arrested you say they're ignorant that doesn't mean that they're stupid that's a different no, it conversation doesn't. no it doesn't it means they're they don't know what's happening and they don't know the language and, about and what's most happening. people and most of us would not know the, the language either they would not know what was happening so that's what i mean by ignorant you don't you're not aware of the process you're not educated in the language That's of right. the game that is being played between the prosecutor and the defender. And most people never, never get it. They and just there's a there's a battle also that goes between not just the prosecutor and the defender, but against the court system, which every time they leave you in a continuance and bring you through the court system, they're making money in the municipal court system that no one even talks about. Well, not not just the municipal; it's every court system, any whether it's county, municipal, federal, state. It doesn't matter. Right. So that was part of what we were learning in the first few years that I got acquainted with you, Irene. It's time to take a break. Give our audience a chance to to uh, reflect on what we'll say. We'll be right back with Irene Morgan, the founder of the Restorative Community Coalition. If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our Restorative Community Coalition, give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center Project, or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at sponsors at therestorativecommunity.org. I feel like they've heard most of what we've just said, Joy. Okay. Well, that's assuming that they've already listened to all these recordings. Yeah, that's true. That's so true. We're doing a new game we're moving to the i change justice conversation part now and i want you to go to what happened a few years ago when we started to understand that the system really does work for the system and we started looking at economics okay yep welcome back to the call in in the last few minutes we've talked a lot about what we were learning in the beginning as we started looking at the difference between re-entry uh, restorative justice started to raise its head as we started looking at the economics and the business systems. Irene, where was it a few years into it that you started to really look at the money and the business of justice, which is what we're talking about on this radio show? What happened that made you really start looking at the money game itself? Well, it's you know, when you when you sit in a courtroom and you see all these suits, the lawyers, the, the attorneys, the staff, all these people in the courtroom, there there was seldom a time that I was in a courtroom where there was more people in the galley than there was suits. Seldom. Mm -hmm. There was there was almost always unless it's, it's a, a lower court or or. Um, um, there are some of the courts that don't have these kinds of numbers, but almost all of them that I have attended, I would say 95% of the, the courts that I have attended, there are more people on the staff and attorneys in the courtroom or coming and going than there are people in the galley being attended to with their cases. Well, and I think there was another thing that happened to you when you started to look at how much does it cost to keep somebody who is not violent necessarily yep. in the system and how much it was costing the taxpayers. I remember one time you said the amount of taxpayers that have to work in order to pay the bills to house a person inside a jail or prison when if they were allowed to come out and do work and become a taxpaying citizen, it would be a completely different story. It was that was I that was uh, I did that work on the prison system and it was it took um, at that time. It was uh, 14 people to incarcerate one person in prison for a year. 
So 14, 14 people had 14 taxpayers, 14 taxpayers working full time at yep. average yep. jobs to make yep. enough money to pay the taxes to house yep. one person in prison for a year. Yep. And that was before we figured out that when you arrest somebody and you put them in prison for a year, that there is a 10 times um, additional cost factor yep. that accrues to the community in terms of public services that go to take care of their family, mental health services that end up being accrued, the cost of divorces and social services that have to be uh, picked up by the family as an as an effect of somebody being arrested and jailed. Yep. And um, in in all the time I've been going to court, I've seen two people, two men, in suits. Everybody else is in dungarees. They're the lower class. They're often people of color. They're they're the lesser educated. If I didn't say that, um, so it's it's obvious that this is not a rich man's uh, playing field, or maybe it is a playing field. <laughs> it's it's just um, it when you take the time to actually look at it and analyze it, it's really really clear. And people say, Irene, you, you, why are you doing this? You can't make a difference. Well, I don't know how many people's lives I have touched, but I know that what I know is I don't know much about how it is I have affected their lives. And I've had many tell me that if it hadn't been for me or somebody in our group or someone like us helping them, they wouldn't have made it through it. So you have affected hundreds and hundreds of people, but by extension, because the Restorative Community Coalition started to do the research into this, we started hosting monthly meetings, we started to go to court with people, you started working on the restorative justice story. All of these things started to affect the way that our community was thinking about the, the expansion of the jail system and so you have made massive amounts of change. And I know people who have said, had you not intervened, I would have already been dead or I would have been in prison for life. But instead, I've been recovered. But I know that there were a couple of years ago when we decided to launch the I Change Justice podcast. It was a big deal to be able to talk publicly about the business side of the justice system, because up until then, it was hard for people to even talk about what you and I were talking about. And De Debbie David was talking about as one of the people who was one of our co-hosts on the on the podcast. It was scary to talk about these subjects in public. Because you were marginalized people. Yep didn't want to talk to you. They didn't yeah. want to believe any of this. Well, anyone who's been in jail or prison is kind of dirty. They're kind of, you know, kind of untouchable. And and you must have done something wrong to be there. You must have done something wrong. But the, the research you did, Joy, with the um, 79 people you interviewed, you realized really quickly that just the 911 call, calling for help, started a process that every one of those 79 people did not intend to start. That was a wake up call for us. Yeah. That was 2018 when we had just completed some work with the Vera Institute of Justice. They started, they were doing a report on whether we should or should not increase the size of our jail. And Irene and Debbie and I and other people who had been answering questions and working with us at our monthly meetings we realized that there was something seriously wrong with what happens to people when they get arrested. And why would we continue as a nation to incarcerate people when the numbers, the return on investment of the numbers, if it costs 14 people working full time to pay for the cost of incarceration for someone who is not truly a violent offender, what was the matter with that economic picture? And the Vera Institute of Justice brought out this information. They said there's a 10 times factor. They just discovered it at one of the universities. And that if somebody stays in jail, it, who is arrested, stays in jail for over 
um, 24 to 72 hours, there was a direct correlation to the psychological impact of being in jail and the probability that they would have less of an uh, ability to get out of the jail system. And we were looking at recidivism rates. And be, and be, and continue to be um, traumatized by that, by that experience. Yeah. So I did that study that you're talking about, Irene, and we interviewed, we had uh, 53 people who had, we had served, there's some answer, Irene, for how many people you've helped. There are 53 people who we were in touch with at the current time when I heard those statistics and I went, I'm going to interview them and find out what happened to them and how they would change the system if they could. And each one of those interviews took at least two to three hours per interview because I didn't know what I was looking for. There wasn't anything out there in the market that explained what happens to people when they get arrested and what the trauma impact is or, you know, just what is what actually happens to them. And after two or three hours talking each to talking to these 53 different people over time, I started going, wow, well, how come you went in the system in the first place? What happened that you got arrested? And they would tell me. And and then I said, well, what happened before that happened? And I found out that most of these people that we were interviewing and trying to find out how to fix the system from the inside, I found out that none of them were attempting to commit a crime. Of the 53 that I interviewed, none of them were. They were in trauma of some kind. They may have been part of an accident and caused uh, something bad to go wrong. They may have been in a uh, doctor's office and had the doctor change prescriptions on them because they were depressed. And when they got out and they were on the new meds, they had a meltdown and caused some upheaval and people called. In fact, several of them had their mothers call the doctor, call the 911 call to get help because the, their sons, in this case, they were sons, um, to have a meltdown and they weren't working properly. So the doctors had told them if they, if the meds that we put them on don't work, give us a call and we'll come help. So they did, they were trusting the system. And when they called, called 911, rather than a mental health professional come to help them deal with the the, melt, the mental health breakdown, they sent police officers. And as soon as you put police officers coming to help people who are having a mental breakdown because of anxiety or trauma themselves, that's a recipe for additional violence. Well, and, and what, I, what I've realized and understood is that when the police are called, someone will be arrested mm -hmm. and and when and when a person is uh, arrested it is now a state matter doesn't matter if everyone rescinds whatever or or you know if, if they apologize or say no i don't want to do that it doesn't matter the state takes over that's because the prosecutor has control and what happens this is what we discovered after doing more and more and more investigation, we realized that at the point of a police officer showing up and arresting someone, the ownership of the human body, it's called a corpus. The human body is a living corpus. If you're dead, you're a corpse. But if you're a living body, you're a corpus. And for the police to take control or the sheriff or whatever law enforcement agency takes control of a body and puts them in a car and then takes them to a jail and puts them in the jail and locks them up, or takes them to the to a hospital and submits them for a mental health problem, the ownership of the human body becomes the the asset to the arresting agency. And what that does is that starts a chain of economic pieces of paper that go into the uh, municipal or judicial or whichever system it goes to. Anytime that the the exchange of paper or the exchange of the body from one jurisdiction to another to another, it causes a new document to be created. So we discovered from doing that survey of these people that 
new documents are created, this creates an exchange of money. And so there was money involved in every single arrest. And every time a person goes into the courtroom or into the jail or moves from one jurisdiction to another jurisdiction, there's a new document that's created. And each one of those documents is called a financial security. And that's why we have so many continuances in our courtroom. Yep. And that led us on another dog trail down the road to try to figure out what actually, how do these systems work and why do they work the way they do? And why does it cost so much to keep people inside the system? And we've had, at this point now, we've had people inside the local jail system for two, even three years or longer because of the way the system works inside the system. And that's part of why we started to do the I Change Justice podcast. Yep. So Irene, in the last, how do you feel right now, looking back for a couple of years, we just passed our two-year anniversary for having started the I Change Justice podcast. How has this made you feel? Because while we don't have the Restore a Life Center created yet, we got dog trail to have to figure out how the system works, why it works the way it is. And now it's time to go build the Restore a Life Center. What does that mean to you as the person who's behind all this? Well, it means a great deal to me, Joy. And and thank you for being the, the dogged host that you are, because you're the ones that beat the bushes to go find some of these extraordinary people that you've interviewed experts and people that have have made it their life's work some of them to try to also figure this out or has have had the experience and know what the issues are and it gives me it gives me great um pride and um great hope for our future because it proves to us that we're not the only ones doing this number one and that um, there's lots of hope because I can see cracks in the dam and, and, and I'm, I'm the eternal optimist. Anyhow, uh, just because something isn't right, doesn't mean it can't be fixed. And if it's right, if it's not right, then it's wrong from my perspective. And, and there are ways to get around it and it just needs to be exposed and um, and bless you for running for office two different times to educate the public. You pretty much knew that you weren't going to win, but you could have. And um, but what you did both times was stop a jail tax from going through. And um, because you educated the public enough. So why do I have hope? I've always I've always been. Well, I haven't always been, but the last 40 years, I'm, I just, I know why I'm here. I have a job to do, and this is it, partially, is to keep my mouth moving and educate people of what is not right action for all. And right action for all is serving everyone. And I just talked to someone today, a friend, and I was relating a story about someone uh, in the, in the community that as a as a young girl, she was um, she was raped by um, a member of the family, and she she was she was a sweet little girl, and then she from this rape she became very um, unpredictable, and so she would act out, and in that acting out as a teenager, then she got arrested, and then she was put in um in jail and then she she had a prison sentence and and I talked to some of the the people that know her and I said and I keep insisting I said she should have never ever been arrested why did we not help this little girl she was traumatized she had she had a a, a terrible experience that was never even looked at to heal why that's not what our system does. We just have to figure it out ourselves. And if if our parents can find the therapy we need, then then we, we can get the help we need. But most people don't get that help. And we should not be incarcerating people who are mentally off balance because of something that happened to them, a traumatic event that shouldn't have happened in the first place. 
So what's interesting in a, in a perfect world. So what's interesting, Irene, is that the first time I ran for office, it was to discuss the fact that there are solutions in the marketplace that get a better return on investment to the taxpayers. And we actually actually proved that with our 2010 grant that we got. We we helped 16 people and only, uh, only 10 of them were successful. And in that one year, we saved the government $125,000 a piece on those people. Yep. And had they gone back into the system and stayed in the system for 10 or 20 years, you're talking about millions of dollars millions. worth of losses. And that's, and people don't understand that those numbers are what keeps the system going. So that was when I ran for office the first time, we did stop that jail tax from going passing in 2015. In 2017, what I did is I ran a political action committee to stop the 2017, because what we did is we found out that there were attorneys, there were accountants, there were businessmen, there were many people in the community who were standing up in opposition to the jail tax because they understood the economics of domination. They understood the civic challenges that were faced because they were in the system in a different way. They either were like a parent of somebody who'd gone into the system or they were a professional working in the system. So we had attorneys and accountants and a guy who even worked for the prison industrial complex for for civic who stood up and explained why building bigger jails is not better for the community. The third time I ran, it was after I had done that, that jail trauma chart and the research with the 75 people. And at that point, I didn't run to stop the system. I I mean, to stop a jail tax because we'd already voted it down twice. I ran because I had discovered that because of technology, when technology came in, we changed the way our 911 systems worked. And what it did is it caused us to use um, the jail and justice systems, the 911 systems, everything was recorded at that point. And because it was recorded, people inside and outside of the system started to worry about who was gonna be liable if something went wrong. And so it changed the nature and the culture of how a 911 call is handled And people started to send the police as first responders instead of 911 protection. And the public didn't know the difference. And most of us still don't. So I didn't stop the jail tax that time, but I got awakened to the fact that the sheriff who controls the community has an incredible amount of power. And that sheriff can control the statistics of justice, they control all the conversation behind closed doors around how a system works or doesn't work for the people. And that was a big wake up call. And that was that happened just before. It was actually uh, before we started the I Change Justice podcast. That was part of the incentive to start talking about the business of justice with the public because the public does not know how our justice system works. And unfortunately, there are many people that think that it doesn't matter if they know or not. They don't realize if they knew more about what really goes on, they wouldn't condone most of what does go on. And yet there are an enormous number of people, the people that we've brought on this call, Irene, there were people who are social justice advocates. There was a fellow from the Chicago um, Opioid and Fentanyl Task Force Yep. Who spoke about what they're doing in Chicago to make changes happen. There was a fellow who came on who was talking about Watiko and the effect of the domination system and the doctrine of discoveries on the public and on our commercial systems locally and internationally that create dysfunctionality within those people who are working inside the system. Yep. Huge impacts. And, and and most of this doesn't even have to exist if we were, um, and I'm going to sound like a, a bleeding heart, and I wear the, I wear the label proudly, um, as well as Pollyanna. And, um, but, 
you know, there's there's a movement now for for peace on earth, and uh, there's a kindness movie, a uh, movement. There's um, um, well, what's it called? The, Compassionate uh, cities. Yeah, the Compassionate cities, and then there's another one that's uh, oh, I'm not coming up with it right now, but the um, there's so many ways that we can be kind to one another without going on social media and blasting each other. And, um, and, and I know there's lots of people, the best, one of the best things I've never been on Facebook. I tried once and I, I just couldn't do it. Every nerve end on my body just screamed. And, um, but I have heard more and more and more people say that they're no longer on social media. And I understand the, the power and the value of it, but it also has, has been detrimental to many people, I believe. And I believe it has given people um, a foundation and, and a format in which to um, not be kind. And that's, that's the part that I'm really glad to see that, that people have had enough and um, they're just not going to go that, that way anymore. Well, there's two sides to that story because right now we are on social media. I Change I know. Justice I know. podcast is a social media platform. And you kind of and, forced me into it. <laughs> well, that's you, Irene. But what's happened is that there are now thousands and thousands and thousands of people who do go to social media yep. and they get educated, which is yep. a powerful, positive thing. Yes, it is. From the podcasts and the radio shows because... On the opposite side of that, media, not social media, media has been using domination tactics to control people to believe that all people who get arrested are criminals, that yeah. all people who do this are that. So the divisiveness in our media over what is honorable and what's just and what's fair and what is freedom and what is crime and what is punishment and what's correct all of those things are confused in the media and the mythology of the marketing systems. So media itself is now becoming more of a public service in many cases. Social media, people have learned to be able to download information and get a whole new set of knowledge. We've got almost, um, what, we've got 110, I'd have to look here at the top of the list. We've got 111 episodes right now. And when you download an app to get on to get the I Change Justice podcast, you can download all the past episodes. So that's like 110 hours worth of direct access information to the people we've interviewed that have lived experience working in, living in, doing business in the business of restorative justice the business of social justice talking about how can we make changes in the world that's 100 that's that's 112 hours of genuine human to human conversation about how the thing that you started Irene back in 2006 has now blossomed into many 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 hours and a lot of information there's reports on our website at the restorativecommunity.org and we have been now interviewed on statewide university college interviews about the prison industrial complex and how we can turn it around. So 17, 18 years later, we're going on to our 18th year. We've been derailed from being able to build the system the Restoral Life Center to do these things. But now in 2014, 2020, what is this, 2024? We have an opportunity to, to do the work of actually intercepting the system and building programs that help people get out and building training to help law enforcement officials and people working in the bureaucracies to give them information about how they can change the system. So you can be very proud of yourself, Irene. Thank you. I'm very proud. I'm very humble. And I'm very grateful for all the people that have showed up and for you for doing these 110 or 12 podcasts. I mean, this is just stellar of you to, to be able to do this every week. 
And well, um, we're going to bring more online in 2024. We're going to be talking to more of the nonprofit leaders who actually many of whom were inspired by the work that you did, Irene. And there's people in Yavapai County in Arizona. There's people in Seattle. There's people in Southern Washington and Oregon and Arizona and now New Mexico who have been learning because of the work that you brought forward. So this is an acknowledgement conversation with you, Irene, as the founder of the coalition. Thank you so much for doing your work. And thank, thank you. you. And and I have great hope for our future. I know we can come out of this. I, I see the cracks in the dam. And I am I am so very excited to be here at this time and and being able to see more of this come to fruition because we all deserve it. We all deserve to be free of this horrible mass incarceration industrial complex that that has kept us so tied up and it's just wrong. Yep. And we can change. Yep. We absolutely can. Yep. And you're it'll be fun. And it'll be fun to watch people be able to get on with their lives. I mean, the the excitement that I see on people's faces when when you just keep encouraging them and, and then they have a success and it's like, oh my gosh, never thought that would happen. Yeah, we've had, had people failures. And we've had people elected to office now in Whatcom County yeah. and it can help in other small cities. That's one of that's where the movement has to start. That's what we've learned. Yep. Is that small cities little people like any one of us taking one right action at a time can infect another person to take right action and together we can make this whole thing change yep so thank you for being on the call irene you bet thank you you bet bye-bye thank you all for listening please share our podcast with your friends and family subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.